my uh, blissful ignorance, sometimes I like to think that if anything's taken away from the sermons, maybe it's something helpful or advantageous. Maybe the Lord's used it in some way to change how we think about his word. Um, and as it happens, what you guys mostly remember is how I can't pronounce the word Maranatha or Mar- Marantha or, or whatever. I got a video today from Jacob Pittman there in San Antonio looking for a church to uh, attend. And he, he says in this video, he says, oh, that one looks nice. What is it? What is that? How do you say that word? Maranatha, Marant, and it's just, so <laughs> thank you for your patience with me, and uh, you know what, you probably pronounce some words wrong too, so <laughs> anyhow, okay, so I want to, I want to start this morning uh, by using our imagination. So I want you to imagine, close your eyes if you must, imagine if you were, imagine you were a gambler in an ancient land, right? Just imagine you were a gambler. Every time you got coin in your pocket, it would just itch at you. You had this longing to play your luck. And you win a lot of times, but you lose a lot more times. You're knee deep in debt. It's not only that, but you come from a family of gamblers. And in this land, some of that debt's been inherited. You really want to be better. You really want to chip away at that massive debt, maybe someday live a life free of debt, but boy, every opportunity you get, that longing to to turn this handful into pile is, uh, is just looming, right? So you've kind of lost all hope. Everybody you know, you owe. And your community is just waiting for the day where the king sends sends you to debtor's prison. One day a letter arrives from a king. And trembling, you open this letter. But it's not what you expect. In fact, this is a letter from a king in a distant land, and he has paid your debt completely. Not only has he paid your debt and you are free beyond even your most distant hopes, he has granted you a lavish inheritance in his distant kingdom. And in his letter he says, grab a pack, take as little as you need, to speed your journey home. And he also says, every day, send me a note listing your needs. 
and I will take care of you. What do you ask him for? What do you ask him for? You've got a a pack. You have some vague understanding of where this distant kingdom is. And you're about to go on a trek through mountain and valley, through comfortable lands and difficult lands, through enemy territory. Because that lavish inheritance under the reign of a righteous king is worth every bit of effort. But what do you ask him for every single day? I think you're going to ask him for a few things. You're going to ask him for directions to get you to that kingdom as soon as possible. You want to get there just without delay, right? But you also need to ask him for supplies. That's where it gets tricky. Because you still got that gambler's instinct, right? You know, you ask him for enough money for the next week or the next month of bread, you know that coin is going to feel like a heavy weight in your pocket, right? That, That innate inclination to hear the laughter in the taverns you walk by and know that they're playing cards or throwing dice. It's just going to be a temptation to you, right? So you don't want them to send you too much money because you know you'll make mistakes. Even with the little money he sends you, you know you'll probably make mistakes because you know yourself, right? Right? And if the prerequisite for citizenship in this kingdom is debt freeness, you know he'll have to continue to pay some debts, right? So you ask him for just enough coin for the bread you need just for today. And even still, you ask him for mercy. Keep, Lord, paying the debts that I. I've racked up even in the last day or two. And you'll also, I think, ask him for the clearest, quickest path to the kingdom, so long as that path doesn't stray too close to a casino or too close to a tavern. I don't think that's a bad analogy to understand why this prayer is here. This is not, in fact, an analogy too distant from the paradigm through which we are supposed to understand our redemption, which is the Exodus. The New Testament authors look to the story of ancient Israel being freed from sin and slavery, I'm sorry, freed from slavery and escorted through the wilderness to the promised land as the picture of our redemption. They were freed by a great redeemer from shackles. And they were redeemed by the blood of a slain lamb. And they passed through the waters, right? And they wander through the wilderness 
receiving daily bread from God himself so that they could make it step by step to the promised land. That is your biblical paradigm for redemption. It's part of the reason it's in the beginning, right? And I think to understand this prayer, Jesus' prayer in Matthew 6, the prayer he tells his disciples should form how they pray is to see yourself as a sojourner in the wilderness. It makes sense of the first half of the prayer. Because as you make your weary trek through the hard lands and the deserts and the valleys, you're driven by a hope for home. Right? And as you make your trek through the villages that against the backdrop of those deserts I just made it through seem quite comfortable, and these people, they're not so bad. I might just settle down here. No, no, remember, the kingdom is better, right? The looming hope of the kingdom drives us through the wilderness to the kingdom. When you're... Weary on the journey, your longing for rest is acutely felt. And when you're comfortable in the wilderness, you recall the promise of a better land and a richer inheritance. And that is the centerpiece of your prayers because it is the centerpiece of your hope. So the sojourner picture makes sense of the first half, but it also, I think, makes sense of the second half. Think about what it would be like if we were, as sojourners, migrating to a distant land. Think, think what it would be like if, the, if we were provided all that we needed for the next nine months. You got like Pallets full of food and clothing. Is that going to help you get from point A to point B? No. It's only going to slow you down. But it would do something. It It might tempt you to just go ahead and get comfortable here. I got all I need for a little while. I'm tired. It's time for a rest. Right? And then you know that you're just racking up debts on the way to the promised land. And, and you know there's no such thing as an indebted citizen of the promised land. So you need those debts to be forgiven. And you need to be kept clear of any situation which might compromise your bank accounts. In other words, You see this passage, this prayer, as the prayer of a sojourner, and you'll see that Jesus is teaching us how to walk through the wilderness so we can make it to the promised land. And he's doing it by teaching us how to pray. So I want to read this passage together, and then we'll go through it step by step. Let's start in the very beginning. Everybody turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 5. 
Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us, into te- lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their, their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Okay. Not too much bread. Not too much bread. Just enough for today. I want to note something before we get into that about the order of these requests. The first step and the most important is that God's name be honored and God's kingdom come and God's will be done. And the second request, at least initially, seems like a shift in topic. It isn't, but it seems that way. Take me home. God, give me whatever I need to get there in one piece. In other words, these two sets of requests are fundamentally related. And every request in the second set follows logically from the first. And the first request relates to my simple physical needs. This is an interesting passage because it's an illusion and it's also a reference all right, what is an illusion? Illusion is when you say something and you mean for that something to draw general attention to an idea. Right? It's not an explicit reference, but you're saying something and you intend for everybody who hears to think, oh yeah, that's just like this other thing. That's an illusion. And this is an illusion to the wilderness generation. What? other moment in biblical history do we see something like daily bread? Daily bread. What is that? Is it manna? By the way, funniest named thing in the whole Bible. They were like, what is it? And never decided because they just used that as the name. What is it? Go get yourself a helping of what is it. Bizarre. Yes, this is an allusion to the wilderness generation because from the moment that the people of Israel feel hunger in the wilderness, God is providing, right? He is providing, not in the way, by the way, that they would prefer. They want lots because they don't really trust Him to do what he has said he will do. And he says, no, 
I'll give you what you need for today. Don't get more than what you need for today. Every morning they wake up and their food would be on the ground. Five second rule. Right? <laughs> their food would be on the ground and they go and they get this manna which they'd use to bake cakes out of and what would happen if they got more than they needed for a day? Gross things. It'd turn into worms or something like that. It's disgusting. Now, because God's amazing, six days of the week that would happen, but on the sixth day, you could get two days worth of provision because he doesn't want you to work on the day where we celebrate God's sweet redemption. Right? So every day except for the Sabbath, you had only what you needed for that one day, but on the Sabbath you had what you needed for this day and the next. Now that actually is a decent... Uh, framework to understand the language in this passage. It's interesting because this word daily is rare. And my, I mean like it's, it's very rarely anywhere. Um, I think only once or twice in all of known Greek literature. Um, and what it means is not exactly daily. Uh, what it means is for the next stretch. So you prayed this word in the morning, you would be using this word referring to tonight. And if you prayed this word in the evening, you'd be using this word referring to the bread for tomorrow, right? And the notion is exactly what we see unfolding in the wilderness generation. I need enough bread to get me by until the next stretch, right? It's also a reference to Proverbs 30. Let me read you. This is Proverbs 37 through 9. Um, I think it's interesting because I think it's just like what we see in this prayer. Two things I ask of you. This is a wise man praying to God. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. What's the assumption behind both of those potential situations? I'm not a good guy. I'm not a good guy. When I'm hungry, I'm mean to people, right? And when I've got everything I need and I've got a bank account stacked full of money to provide all that I want or need for a long, long time, I get haughty. And I believe this is me. This is not God. I think that reference is looming behind this passage. And in either case, this passage is teaching us to ask God for what we need. Now, it's not just limited to food. You can see this dynamic later on, next chapter, Matthew 6, verse 25. This is, this is referring to the, the immediate felt needs of today. 
I have felt needs of today. I need to, I need to have clothes uh, that don't have holes in them so I don't get fired at work. Um, and I need food. I need my car to run. You know, things like that. Let me show you how Jesus expands on this notion in Matthew 6. You can read it together with me. Starting verse 20. Uh, I'm sorry. Is it 6? No, that's the wrong. Matthew. Um, no, that's right. Yeah, Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither snow nor they, they neither they don't snow either. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. How they grow. They never toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But, and listen to the structure of this conclusion because it is the structure of the prayer. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. What is the structure of this prayer? God, please bring your kingdom and also add these other little insignificant things to me. Right? All right, one more note here. Things have changed in the last 2,000 years. The desperation for daily bread isn't so acutely felt nowadays. But back then, most people were day laborers. Most people would, and they didn't get paid two weeks in advance or for the last two weeks in big clumps. They got paid that day, right? You can see this actually in the, in the parables that Jesus teaches. People are like, uh, I, I need somebody to help me with the harvest. I'll pay you this much for your day's work at the end of the day. So that, listen, if there's nobody to pay me today, I don't eat. I don't eat today if there's nobody to pay me today. Or, if you wake up with a bad cough and a fever, you're, all of a sudden the security of your family is at stake. Right? There was desperate need, and it was felt immediately. And we like to pretend that that's no longer the case, but it's pretense that it's no longer the case. 
I've told this story before. In 2008, I showed up to one of my first classes at Southwestern Seminary at the college, and my professor walked in and he said, half of my retirement disappeared last night. And that is a relatively minor blip in relatively recent history. Our bread is needed daily. And though we have nice homes and though we have enough money, in a lot of cases, to buy enough groceries for a week, you need to see that your real situation, and I'm referring to your physical needs, is as tenuous as the day laborers that Jesus was speaking with. Don't take God's grace and mercy for granted. There is a man right now who declared war on a nation that is loosely allied with the United States. That individual, as far as we can tell, has total control over his military and access to a button which would, for all intents and purposes, stop Western civilization. We are desperate for our daily bread. Their situation is our situation, which is why, even if you don't feel desperate for your daily bread, you should be asking the Lord for it. He is the one giving it to you every day. Okay. Last thing. When we ask God for provision, for that daily provision, we must be careful that our chief goal is speeding the journey, not making it comfortable. Having maybe a week's stock wouldn't weigh you down too terribly much. Having maybe a month's stock amongst your family might not weigh you down too much, but it would make things a lot more comfortable. It would make sure that that you weren't going to be hungry tomorrow. But that's not what we're allowed to pray for. We pray for just enough so that we're not too heavy laden to speed our journey to the kingdom. So you should be asking for only those things that don't weigh you down too. It sure would be nice to have that promotion. But be careful to ask God for things that might tempt you away from a speedy journey to the kingdom. You see what I mean? Okay. All right, so immediately from there, we pivot to dwell on sin. From our physical needs to sin. Does that seem jarring to you? It did to me. But when you think about this request as a sojourner, it clearly relates to the whole. 
You know, it's, it's clear why this is such a central emphasis. Why, why dwell on sin? Why reflect on indebtedness here? It's because we are the sort of people who amass debts. That's why I chose for my, my, my story at the outset a gambler. We are debtors. And what this word means... You can see it a little bit more clearly in the clarifying note at the end of the passage. Trespass, it means sin. God is righteous and He will not have sin in His presence. So if we are steadily pacing towards His kingdom, knowing that we will stand before Him, then that entire journey is meaningless Indeed, your position would be worse at the end if you showed up before Him with your debts. We are the sort of people who amass debts. Now, our kingdom is the sort of kingdom where there is no debt, right? So we are in desperate need that the King forgive our debts. That much may be clear. I wouldn't, though, have expected the following clause. As we forgive our debtors. Hmm. As we forgive our debtors. All right. Well, we're going to have to get into this because it presents some potential complications. This is the only request in the prayer that is followed by an explanation, which means that Jesus anticipated your question. He's a good teacher. Look down at 14. He says, Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. All right. Okay, what's going on here? What's going on here? Well, first of all, the point is not that your forgiveness precedes God's forgiveness, right? The point is not that your forgiveness toward others precedes God's forgiveness towards you. I want to show you this dynamic in Matthew 18. Let's look a little bit ahead. This is a powerful warning. Let me read you this story starting in verse 23. Actually, I want to start with verse 21 because that's the reason the story was told. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, I'm I'm just betting that he had just gotten upset with one of the other disciples. They're spending all their time together. They're hungry and tired. This guy has done this like so many, I can't even count how many times. Peter said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? He's at six right now. (laughs) Just kidding. As many as seven times, last straw. Jesus said, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. 
I like to think that Peter got out like a tick mark and wrote down 490 ticks. All right, we got a little ways to go. That's not the point. The point is never stop forgiving your brother. Then he tells this story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. There is no way that I can think of to give a picture of what 10,000 talents was. It was a lot of money. We're talking about what's, Elon, what's in Elon Musk's bank account. Billions of dollars. It's a huge... In fact, it's so huge that this would have been like a king's wealth. Right? 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay... I'm sorry. When the king began to settle... One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold into slavery with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. But the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But... When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is something like near $10,000 last I checked, I think. But a, a reasonable amount of debt, but nothing compared to 10,000 pounds. Found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? As I had mercy on you, and in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Mm. Wow. The point of both of these passages is the same. Forgiveness shouldn't be when it isn't freely given. I want to read you a quote from John Stott. I love this. Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own. You know your sin. You know the gravity of your sin such to run to God and plead for mercy. Then the sin against you is nothing in comparison. It should be easy to forgive. Now, don't let me discount the pain that is sin 
the pain that is when others hurt you. What I don't mean to say is that you should just be able to, in a heartbeat, write it off. But what I am saying is that the sin that hurts you against the backdrop of the sin that has been defaming God's glory systematically since the day that you learned to walk and talk and and sin in its most brilliant expressions should make that hurt look tiny. Those who receive mercy should be known for their mercy. It's the only way to relate to the King who has forgiven our debts. Okay, and finally, don't lead me near temptation. All right. Lead me not into temptation. That's an interesting request. I want to draw near to this because it leads to further questions about whether this is something God does. Does God lead people into temptation? Lead us not into temptation. Okay, well... We're going to have to get get into some language here. Um, This word, periosmus, periosmus, um, in every biblical passage in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, and in every passage until this moment in the Bible, um, means testing. Testing. In the sense that God leads His people through situations sometimes in order to test them. Um, Same word used in Matthew 4 when the Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness to be tested. Make sense? This word is tricky though because that same word, right? it's not an easy avenue where you say, oh, that's a different word. The same word is used in James to describe what God never does. He never tempts anyone to do evil. So I want to know, in what way does God lead His people into testing or into temptation, if you want to use that word? Well, I think what you see in the Scriptures is that sometimes God allows us to encounter situations that because of our sin might tempt us to falter in our faith. Sometimes He allows us to encounter situations like that. He does this, it seems, for two reasons. Because He's reminding us who we were. He's reminding us who we were, and He's proving to us who we've become. I think it's a mixture of those dynamics. Even if you're encountering a situation that you would have um, stumbled within big time and you don't. Say you come out clean on the other side. That testing scenario has recalled to you all that you are in your flesh without the Spirit, all that you are without God's grace and mercy poured out on you every moment, all that you are outside of Christ. And it's taught you that God has done a good work in your heart and He's changing you 
And he's molding you into the image of Christ. And he's making you stronger. He's making you more faithful. Every day you are being molded into Christ's image. So that whereas ten years ago that would have been a stumbling block to you, it wasn't today. Does that make sense? So how does this prayer fit in? Don't lead me there. Don't lead me there. I think this prayer is an admission that I haven't arrived yet. I'm not so holy that I passed the test. I don't feel that. I, I feel my flesh looming every morning. I feel bitter and malicious. I feel faithless sometimes and I need You, Lord, to preserve me and I need You to keep me far away from temptation because I don't think I can... I don't think I have it right now. I need more grace, more grace, more grace. This is not a suggestion that if the Lord chooses to put me here, He's not good or He doesn't care about me. But this is, this is an admission just like we... we we encountered a moment ago, I am the type of person who amasses debts. I need you to forgive the debts that I amassed yesterday. And, and so I, I need you to keep me from a scenario where I'd be able to amass more. Does that make sense? This final request relates simply and logically to the other two. I am the sort of person, we are the sort of people who amass debts so don't give us too much such that we could leverage our stuff to amass more debts. We're the sort of people who amass debts, so, so we forgive others who do that to us. And we're the sort of people who amass debts, so keep us as far as possible from temptation to amass more. The, the perpetual backdrop to these requests is, I am frail and foolish. And you are holy and good. That's why this prayer is, in a way, an expression of the Gospel. You are righteous. You are renowned. You are good. And you are, you, your will is, is best. And, and me, I'm frail. And I'm in sin. And I need forgiveness. And I need you to keep me far from situations that might be, get me into even more trouble. My only hope is in God's righteousness. My only hope is in His kingdom. My only hope is in His will. So do what it takes to get me to that kingdom in one piece, O oh Lord. Amen? This is an admission of our frailty against the backdrop of God's mercy. And I like it because it's not just a, a plea for mercy. It's a plea for more and more mercy every day. I love the words in James, but He gives more grace. You didn't get the full allotment of grace the day you came into Christ. Right? He's pouring out grace every day. That's helpful to me personally because I see how despicable I am more today than I did yesterday and five years ago and ten years ago. As Christians mature, they see themselves as they 
are, which is why, by the way, there's some dramatic irony to the Pharisees. You see a setting of religious people, and they believe they are the best people in their community. They are not truly religious. Because you love Jesus, and you come into His presence every day, you're given eyes to see who you are. The sin that remains in your heart. The motives that drive your actions. In one of his last letters before death, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. I don't think that's on accident. Every day our sinful motives are more visible, our idolatrous hearts are more transparent, and our need for grace is more clear. We've got to reflect that awareness in our prayers. Your prayers must be driven by that awareness. We know how prone we are to sin. We know how prone we are to sin. And we know our enemy is lurking about seeking to devour us. And on our worst days, we want to be devoured. Right? So we ask God to keep us, if possible, from any arena which might include temptation to sin. And that's okay because this prayer from start to finish is an expression of frailty and dependence. We need God to do it. Uh, to keep us. So that's the prayer. That's the prayer. Side note, uh, some of your translations will have for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's probably not original. It looks like it was added in the second century. But you know what? It's right there along the... <laughs> it is the theological direction of this prayer, so you're not going to offend anybody um, by finishing your prayer that way. But okay, we've spent a few weeks now studying this prayer. Now that, if that reflection, if the reflection on this prayer, if your time in these words doesn't change the way you live and how you think and especially how you pray, then I'm afraid it's been a waste of time for you. It should. should change the way you think about yourself and about God and should change the way you pray. And I have a, a few takeaways that I, that I think might help Fuel those changes. Nothing profound. It's worth dwelling on. First of all, and I really didn't touch on this a whole lot, but it's certainly relevant and interesting, and it certainly should change the way we pray. You should be praying us, not me. You notice there's never a moment in this prayer where this prayer is merely an individual prayer for individual forgiveness, for individual freedom from temptation, for individual daily bread. I think one of the missteps we've made culturally is that we're a lot more individualistic than we used to be as humans. <laughs> Now, 
when we talk about being shaped into the image of Christ, don't get it wrong, we're talking about the church. Right? We're talking about the church. In Ephesians 4, when Paul talks about growing up into maturity, don't get it wrong, he's talking about the church. You should not see your individual progress in the faith independently from the progress that we make in the faith. And I don't mean we in this like amorphous global Christian community sort of sense. 99% of the time when the New Testament is talking about the church, it's talking about the local church. In other words, us. The people that you spend time with on Sunday mornings and Wednesday or Thursday evenings. The people you call to spend time with as a family. The people who drive you nuts sometimes. Right? All of the Christian hope in maturity is in the maturity of the church. Now, you are a part of that. And you are an individual. It's not to say you are lost in the community or something like that. Some faiths go that way. Buddhism, uh, Hinduism go this way where like there is no such thing as an individual. I think there are sweet moments throughout the scripture where, where it's just you and God. Right? Um, and, and, and he relates to us individually. However, we ought to be praying not only for ourselves. In fact, if you only exclusively ever pray for yourself, I think it's an indictment. Our Father, forgive our debts. Keep us, keep us from temptation. So pray for your brothers and sisters as you're praying for yourself. Second, from the outset and woven throughout the prayer is the backdrop that your Father loves you. And He knows what you need and He's watching and He's aware and He cares. Amen. Don't lose that dynamic. When you bow before the Father, you bow before someone who loves you more than anyone else will ever love you. the same time you're talking to your king who is holy there was this around the time of the emergent church there was this movement of like dramatic familiarity with Jesus and God you probably remember Jesus is my homeboy that shirt wasn't originally ironic there was a lot of teaching at the time about God knows you and he loves you as a father relates to his son and he already knows what you're thinking, so you should just tell him. And I had a roommate in college at the time and, and he would boast about uh, when he was feeling the heat of a tough situation, cussing at God in rage. I just remember being terrified. Because he's the king. He's not ever stopped being the king. And yes, he is your father who loves you. But he's the sort of king that you bow before, even though you're closely familiar with him. You never stop saying, 
Yes, O Lord. Yes, sir. To the king. Both those dynamics are in this passage. Our Father in heaven, right? Our Father who loves me, and yet I amass debts against him. This, this dynamic is throughout the prayer, and it should be in your prayers too. Fourth, I don't even need to explain this. Your prayer should be the prayers of a sojourner. Audit your prayers. Think about how you pray and ask yourself if this is the prayer of a permanent resident. Is it? Is this the prayer of a permanent resident? Do I, do I want a, a more stable, comfortable situation in the wilderness? Or do I want only that which will speed my journey to the kingdom? Your prayers should be the prayers of a sojourner. Fifth, ask God for your most basic needs. In other words, there is no request too small. That's not how God works. God's in the details. Right? He, he's clothing the tulips. We just read that. He cares about the little things. So you shouldn't be ashamed to bring them to Him. If something's puzzling you and it seems audacious to bring it before the king of all creation, you're just misunderstanding the king. He doesn't have a limited uh, attention span so he can only cover the most important. No. He's in the details with you. Sixth, ask God for the return of his kingdom, for the glory of his name, for the doing of his will. In other words, there is no request too big. There's no request too small. There's no request too big. The first three requests of this prayer are the biggest prayers you could ask for, the biggest requests you could make ever. There is no, there's nothing more global than God's kingdom come, His name being renowned, and His will being done on earth. That is global. It is, it is eschatological. It is it is the most biggest thing you could ask for. So don't be worried about asking for things too big. Right? See where I'm going? This prayer is transcendent, but it's also right there with you. Okay. Finally. If a significant portion of your prayer life isn't about your sin, you should ask for eyes to see your sin. Let me repeat that. If a significant portion of your prayer life is not about your sin, you should ask for eyes to see your sin. You know, I started using the Book of Common Prayer sometimes. And not long ago, I was tempted to just set it aside as like a reference, but not, not something I was reading consistently because I felt like these guys are just talking about sin a lot. Every morning and afternoon and evening, they're praying for forgiveness. And that seemed like, wow, it's a, it's a weird emphasis. I don't think it is anymore. Look at, look at this prayer. It's not long. And 
a third of it is about sin. My sin, the sin of others, and my proneness to sin. I, I think, and this is kind of a bummer because we don't like thinking about sin, but I think that as we are fleeing sin, the sin that remains in our heart should be a central conversation topic with God. Right? And if it's not, then there's a very real risk that you're not actually dealing with it seriously. And that's a huge problem for all of us. Okay? Okay. So let this prayer mold your prayers. And remember, at every step of the way, there's more and more mercy. Amen? Amen.